I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is episode 15. In the last two episodes, we discussed laboratory science in the United States during a time when science in this country was in its early stages. But how did we get from the types of research done then, small projects with small amounts of research funding from private and nonprofit institutions, to today's big science, which is characterized by very large research projects with professional administrators and funded by the government? That is what I wanted to focus on in today's episode, where we look at a key document that shaped science in America after World War II and that is seen as leading to today's era and attitude of big science. We'll first look at Vannevar Bush's report to the president titled Science, the Endless Frontier from 1945, and then we'll give that report some context by looking at the paper The National Science Foundation and the Debate Over Post-War Research Policy, 1942-1945, A Political Interpretation of Science, the Endless Frontier, published by Daniel Kevels in 1977. Okay, let's dive in. The first paper we'll look at is the report, Science, the Endless Frontier, written by Vannevar Bush. The author, Vannevar Bush, was born in 1890, died in 1974, and had a long and illustrious career. I won't be able to do it justice here, so let me just mention a few highlights from his life. He founded the company that became the Raytheon Company in 1922. And just as an aside, I think that's kind of cool because I used to work at Raytheon. He received his doctorate in engineering jointly from MIT and Harvard. In 1932, he became the Dean of the School of Engineering at MIT. In 1939, he became President of the Carnegie Institution of Washington. In 1941, he became the Director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development and was critical to the success of the Manhattan Project in World War II. He also received a number of awards for his contributions to U.S. science and technology including the National Medal of Science in 1963. He was also made a Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1948, and he was made an Officer of the French Legion of Honor in 1955. And, as we'll hear in this episode, Bush also became essential to the creation of the National Science Foundation with his report, Science, the Endless Frontier. The report itself was published by the United States Government Printing Office in 1945, though it now also sits on a webpage at the National Science Foundation's website. The report begins with a cover letter, called in the report a letter of transmittal. President Roosevelt had asked Vannevar Bush to write the report on November 17, 1944, but President Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945, before Bush was able to finish the report. And thus, Vannevar, in the letter of transmittal, dated July 25, 1945, is actually addressing President Harry Truman. The cover letter summarizes the main points of the report, which we'll get to in just a moment. But Bush ends his cover letter with a paragraph 
that captures the spirit of the overall report. The pioneer spirit is still vigorous within this nation. Science offers a largely unexplored hinterland for the pioneer who has the tools for this task. The rewards of such exploration, both for the nation and the individual, are great. Scientific progress is one essential key to our security as a nation, to our better health, to more jobs, to a higher standard of living, and to our cultural progress. Just listen to that rhetoric. Science, pioneer, vigorous, progress, rewards. The point of the paragraph, and therefore of the report, should be clear. Science is an engine that will lead the U.S. to a prosperous future. Bush includes President Roosevelt's letter to Bush in Bush's report to President Hoover. So by doing this, Bush is essentially giving authority to the report, and therefore Bush's conclusions in order to get Truman's endorsement. In President Roosevelt's letter to Bush, Roosevelt claims he wants to continue the scientific momentum Bush achieved as director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development during the war. He asks Bush to provide his recommendations on the following four points. One, what can be done, considering safety and security, to make public the scientific knowledge gained during the war in order to stimulate new jobs? Two, how best to continue future work in medicine and related sciences? Three, what can the government do to aid research by public and private organizations? Four, How can the government discover and develop scientific talent in American youth? This, then, is the focus and mandate President Roosevelt gave to Vannevar Bush to identify those specific ways the government can foster scientific progress and education. It is Bush's response to Roosevelt's letter that really seemed to paint a future for the development of modern science in America. Bush starts the report by declaring the importance of science to the future of the country titling the executive summary, Scientific Progress is Essential. Even today we hear how scientific progress is so essential, but notice that no one ever says what they mean by scientific progress. Do they mean more scientific papers are published? More scientists are hired? More experiments are conducted? More knowledge is generated? I really don't know, no one ever says, but as a rhetorical tool, that's a great phrase. Because who wants to stand in the way of progress? Shouldn't we support progress? Of course we should, even though it is never clear in which direction progress is taking us. But in the report, here is how Bush characterizes the benefits of scientific progress. Again, even though scientific progress is not defined. Advances in science when put to practical use mean more jobs, higher wages, shorter hours, and here I assume he means fewer work hours, work per day. More abundant crops, more leisure for recreation, for study, for learning how to live without the deadening drudgery, which has been the burden of the common man for ages past. Advances in science will also bring higher standards of living, will lead to the prevention or cure of diseases, will promote conservation of our limited national resources, and will assure means of defense against aggression. But to achieve these objectives, to secure a high level of employment, to maintain a position of world leadership, the flow of new scientific knowledge must be both continuous and substantial. 
I think if we honestly look at those claims made in 1945 and compare them to how many of those benefits we have gained today in 2021, I think we might now say that those were perhaps unsubstantiated claims for how much science will improve the future. But nevertheless, in 1945, to a country just coming out of a world war and looking at an uncertain future, science is painted by Bush as the answer for growth and prosperity. To Bush, science leads to new scientific knowledge, which leads to inventions and jobs and health and prosperity and security. Bush here is making a key claim that science should be a concern of the government, which prior to World War II, it largely was not. Since the government is concerned with the health, well-being, and security of its citizens, and since science can improve all of those, the government must therefore be concerned with science. Moreover, in the report, Bush goes on to specify that government must create a national science policy. This science policy, he says, should stress the importance of basic research, which in science speak largely means scientific research without direct or immediate application. This is sometimes referred to as pure research, as opposed to applied research. But since any applied research is built on a foundation of basic research, Bush is making the case for pumping up efforts to foster basic research. And in order to get more basic research, we also need more scientists to do the research, which means we need more scholarships and fellowships for science graduate students. Bush goes on to identify a number of additional specific ways the government should proceed on the science promotion front, including, for example, by creating a permanent science advisory board to give advice and recommendations to executive and legislative branches of the government, creating IRS codes to give incentives for research and development expenditures, and increasing the flow of scientific information with other countries. But setting aside the lasting cultural meme that scientific progress is a real thing that will materially improve the quality of life, one of the biggest outcomes of this report, I think, begins in the first paragraph of chapter 6, titled The Means to the End, where he says ensuring science promotion should be the responsibility of the government. One lesson is clear from the reports of the several committees attached as appendices. The federal government should accept new responsibilities for promoting the creation of new scientific knowledge and the development of scientific talent in our youth. The mechanism for this, he says, is the creation of a National Research Foundation, what we today know as the National Science Foundation. His vision was of a government agency whose purpose was to fund basic research in colleges and universities, especially in medicine and the natural sciences, as well as to administer science scholarships and fellowships. Perhaps most importantly, the people running the agency would be actual scientists, not politicians people who can actually understand scientific research and scientific education, but also who can understand where resources should be focused to fill gaps and needs for the country as a whole. Today, we see the results of that agency. The National Science Foundation has an annual budget of about $8.5 billion and supports approximately 25% of all federally supported basic research conducted by America's colleges and universities. Yet the paper titled, 
the National Science Foundation and the debate over post-war research policy, 1942 to 1945, a political interpretation of science, the endless frontier, written by Daniel Kevels, provides interesting extra details about the political context surrounding the letter from President Roosevelt and Benavar Bush's report, Response in Science, the Endless Frontier. Early in World War II, there grew concerns in the U.S. about the domination of research by just a few big businesses, aligned with a few top universities. According to Kevels, in the late 1930s, about two-thirds of all industrial research workers were employed in fewer than 10% of all industrial labs, and by the end of the war, some 66% of all research and development dollars would go to only 68 corporations, some 40% to only 10. A growing feeling by some was that science could only serve the public interest if the government took a more active role in how science was structured. National needs should be prioritized, not just market needs. The New York Times science editor, Waldemar Kampfert, summarized the issue as, laissez-faire has been abandoned as an economic principle. It should also be abandoned, at least as a matter of government policy, in science. This issue caught the attention of West Virginia Senator Harley Kilgore, who became convinced that there needed to be a central government agency staffed by public-spirited professionals to guide government science and technology policy. After much debate, Kilgore drafted a bill in 1942 to create the Office of Scientific and Technological Mobilization, which would be an independent government agency to coordinate all scientific and technical agencies in the federal government, including grants and loans for scientific and technical education. One key provision of Kilgore's bill was that the OSTM would be granted ownership of any patents and intellectual property that resulted from any entity that received federal government support. While Kilgore's bill received some support, it also drew opposition from industry trade associations, as well as from the Army and the Navy. The patent provisions, in particular, were objected to, as well as military research being governed by a civilian-dominated agency. Scientists also objected to the bill, since they bristled at being told what to research. James Conant, chemist and president of Harvard University, said, Beware in times of peace of coordinating agencies with dictatorial powers, of ideas of a peacetime scientific general staff. So the scientists were relieved when the bill caught the attention of Vannevar Bush. Bush admired some aspects of the bill, but was wary of the threat of political control of research. Bush wrote Kilgore a letter praising features of the bill he liked, such as the establishment of a science advisory group in the government, as well as federal support for academic research and training. But he urged Kilgore not to put restrictions on industrial research. Kilgore revised the bill yet again, but it still fell short of Bush's vision. Kilgore wanted the agency to be responsive to public control and to support research for the advancement of public welfare, while Bush wanted an agency run by scientists mainly for the purpose of advancing science. In 1944, a government lawyer suggested that President Roosevelt could formally ask Bush to recommend how best to advance science in post-war America. There would be political advantages if Bush's response were received on record 
before Kilgore's bill could be voted on in the next Congress. Thus, a letter was drafted with consultation with Bush, and that's how he got President Roosevelt's letter to Bush in November 1944, asking for Bush's recommendations on the four points we mentioned earlier. How could scientific information developed during the war help the public general welfare? How to organize a medical research program? How could the government help research in public and private institutions? And how to promote scientific talent in American youth? To prepare his response, Bush appointed committees, one for each of the president's questions. The committees were staffed largely by academics and representatives from industry. Once the committees submitted to Bush their recommendations, Bush made his final edits, resulting in the published report Science the Endless Frontier that became public on July 19, 1945. Throughout the rest of 1945 and into 1946, there were political negotiations between those who favored Kilgore's version, which had the National Science Foundation being administered by a director appointed by the president, and Bush's National Research Foundation, which was to be administered mainly by a presidentially appointed civilian scientist board that would then choose their own director. Negotiations and political wrangling continued throughout the rest of 1946, 1947, 1948, 1949, and it wasn't until March 1950 that Congress and the President finally approved the establishment of a National Science Foundation. And so that is some context for how Vannevar Bush's report, Science the Endless Frontier, came to be, how we got the National Science Foundation, and how the era of federal funding for post-war scientific research and development got started. With federal science funding now policy, science was seen as an engine for prosperity, and scientists were able to propose and create ever larger research projects and programs, resulting in what we today refer to as big science. And with that, we wrap up episode 15 of the Techno Slipstream podcast. Thank you for listening. And right now, head on over to patreon.com slash Kendall Giles to our Patreon page and please sign up. There you can support the show, receive show transcripts, as well as additional writings. I really appreciate your support. But in any case, again, thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream. Slipstream.